is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company today. Plenty to talk about in the next hour or so. Australian oranges are feeling the squeeze. What it might mean for your cup of juice before one o'clock. We'll talk about some changes at the top of Cattle Australia and the reasons behind them. And how do you go about creating an oasis in the middle of a drought, one that has now turned into a very profitable business for one Queensland family? I'll bring you that story before one o'clock today as well. As always, get in touch with me on 0487 993 2 to send me a message. First today, though, on the planet right now, there are some 800 million people who are considered food insecure. And as Carrie Fowler explains, it's an astonishing and growing number driven largely by climate, conflict and COVID. He's known as the father of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault and special envoy for global food security at the US State Department. He says the numbers of malnourished are concerning, not only because no one likes to see people suffer, but because of the security risk that suffering poses. Dr Fowler's been visiting Australia this week, discussing leadership in the face of these global challenges. He's speaking with Kath Sullivan, where he addresses the question of how to feed the globe in the face of a changing climate. I think we have to prepare for climate by by looking at our agricultural systems uh, through the lens of resilience. The systems need to be more resilient. And what does that mean? Well, if you look at the continent of Africa, which we're very focused on because there's so many food insecure people there. Um, By the way, the country that has the most, the largest population with food insecurity is the Democratic Republic of Congo. What we need to do How is... How many people there are considered food insecure? Oh, well, tens of millions, uh, over 20 million uh, people there are food insecure. And if you look long term, we, we realize that humanitarian need is outstripping our ability to supply humanitarian food relief. So obviously, uh, supplying food aid is not uh, the long term or sustainable solution on, on Earth. What we really need to be doing is building up our agricultural systems. And, and to do that, I think we, we need to get back to basics. Um, particularly in Africa, there's a need for uh, healthier and more fertile soils and also for adapted crops, for crops that are bred to deal with the kind of climate extremes that we're seeing. And short of that, um, if you have depleted, eroded, poor soils and you have unadapted crops, Uh, Nothing else that you can do is going to make a lot of difference in terms of food insecurity. So we need to have that solid foundation. And that means um, investing in everything that we need to invest in in terms of crops and soils to create that because that's the only long-term sustainable solution. So would you say you're optimistic? I don't generally think of myself as either optimistic or pessimistic. I am pessimistic when it comes to uh, thinking about the growing number of challenges that that agriculture and food security face, but I I found myself being much more optimistic about the kinds of solutions that I see under development. Dr Fowler, um, you're well regarded around the globe as the architect behind the seed vault. Can you just tell us a 
about how that project is unfolding at the moment and whether you've concerns about the risks that those issues you talked about before like climate change and um, and, and civil unrest that that could have on the seat vault? Well, the, you know, the seat vault uh, was designed to safeguard a backup copy of all of the diversity, the crop diversity in the form of seed that n- countries around the world have. So the seed vault now uh, has, uh, I think, 1,255,000 1, di- samples of different crop varieties. And that's the kind of diversity that plant breeders around the world, including here in Australia, are going to need to develop crops that are adapted to the new new climate. So I, I think it's it's certainly a, a major part of the solutions that we're going to we're going to need for the future. And given the challenges of climate change, do you think that there'll be a greater call on perhaps some of those ancient seeds or varieties that we haven't tended to use on a commercial scale in more recent times? Yeah. You know, if you look globally at at, um, at agriculture, you'd have to say that most of the investments have gone into the major crops, the major five or six uh, grain crops. But in the future, if we are looking for agricultural systems that provide good nutrition for all segments of society and all ages and classes of people, including women and children in particular, then we need to be putting uh, more funding into uh, plant breeding of indigenous uh, crops, vegetables, fruits, roots and tubers and such, to make both agricultural systems more resilient, but to give that kind of full nutrition that, that people need. And when you think about breeding those kind of crops so that they become good options for farmers and can enter into the marketplace, then uh, scientists are going to need to go back to uh, seed banks to get the kind of diversity that they can use to fashion those varieties. You're often talking about such big ideas, such large numbers, people in countries far away, um, research that hasn't even unfolded yet. What is your message, I guess, for um, somebody who might be listening to this story who's perhaps a farmer or perhaps they're a consumer? How can um, the everyday Australian contribute? You know, I, I always think that everybody has something to contribute and you don't need to be um, a person like me being interviewed on television and speaking grand ideas to to do your part. It's a little bit like uh, what we had in, in the United States years ago called a bucket brigade. So if a house was on fire, you would get a line of people with buckets and one would be at the pond dipping water out of the pond and they'd be passing it down and another would be throwing it on the fire at the end of the line. Um, We're all on that line somewhere and whether you're the person throwing the bucket of water on the fire or you're the person dipping the bucket into the pond to get the water, it doesn't really matter because everybody along the line is is necessary and that's that's sort of how I view my own life and, and others. That's Dr. Carrie Fowler speaking with reporter Kath Sullivan. What are your thoughts? Do you have a view on how we're going to to meet those targets and bring people out of food insecurity? 0487 993 2 is the number to send me a text message. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. It's 13 past 12. Australia is expecting the World Trade Organisation to deliver a landmark treaty that will crack down on billions of dollars of subsidies for illegal fishing, and it could happen next month. 
Australia's Parliament yesterday tabled a report recommending ratification of the agreement on fisheries subsidies, which would make it illegal for governments to give subsidies to fishing fleets that engage in illegal fishing. It's only the second time the WTO has put up an agreement like this, and it's the first time it's been done with an environmental outcome in mind. Two-thirds of the WTO's 164 members will need to ratify the treaty, and the hope is that Pacific nations will come to the table. The Assistant Trade Minister, Tim Ayres, says it's the first step in trying to stop illegal fishing. What this agreement does, uh, it's a world-first agreement, is make uh, subsidies for illegal fishing uh, unlawful. Uh, That means that WTO participant countries, 164 countries, will be required to cease making subsidies for illegal fishing and overfishing. We know that there's about $35 billion worth of subsidies for fishing around the world, and about more than $20 billion of that is is distortionary and harmful. Uh, This article, this instrument from the World Trade Organization, is a good first step towards eliminating uh, illegal fishing and overfishing. How exactly do these subsidies end up going towards illegal fishing? Fishing uh, countries around the world, uh, many of them engage in subsidies for their fishing fleets. Many of those fishing fleets are engaged in fishing activity in the Pacific. Uh, much of that is legal. Uh, much of that is um, agreed to by the participant countries in the Pacific, but some of it is not. Some of it is illegal overfishing that threatens the sustainability of fishing stocks that are a crucial asset, um, both in environmental terms and food security terms for Pacific states. Now, now this, this treaty arrangement is an opportunity to eliminate harmful subsidies. Uh, it is a good first step. Uh, it, it, has, it has taken a long time to bring to life. Uh, and I was really pleased to be part of the Australian delegation at the last World Trade Organisation where we seized this opportunity and the Pacific really stood up in a coordinated way and fought really hard for this set of changes. It has been championed by um, the World Trade Organisation Director General Ngozi Okonji-Iweala. She, she has uh, been fighting hard uh, working with countries to make sure that we get the requisite number of uh, ratifications that bring this treaty into force. It will make a real difference for fishing stocks in the Pacific. It is not the only step, of course, that needs to be undertaken. There is much more work uh, that uh, we need to do together to protect Pacific fishing stocks, but it is a very good first step. Are Pacific nations on board with this uh, treaty? There is strong agreement across the Pacific uh, on uh, delivering this as the first step uh, for the World Trade Organization in, in eliminating uh, illegal subsidies. Uh, both uh, Each country has its own ratification process. Uh, some of them are more complex than others. It is a, it is a legal process. It, Australia... The, the tabling of uh, this treaty in the Australian Parliament is the final step in our ratification process. Uh, Fiji is also very close to ratification uh, as well. Um, there is There are nearly 50 countries who have uh, ratified this agreement already. 
uh, and there is a very high expectation that at a senior meeting, senior level meeting in Geneva in a month or so, that many more countries will arrive with their articles of ratification in their briefcases and we will be much closer uh, to, to achieving the number of ratifications that are required to bring the treaty into force. Uh, we, we, are, we are determined to keep working uh, with the countries in our region uh, in collaboration to drive uh, this treaty and its ratification, uh, but also to engage in the next steps that are required to deliver uh, to deliver um, uh, you know better outcomes in terms of Pacific Island fishing stocks. That's Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayres speaking with Mackenzie Smith. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 17 past 12. Now, meanwhile, in Indonesia, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is expected to talk with the Chinese Premier Li Chung as leaders gather for the ASEAN summit. The pair will meet on the sidelines, and of course, one of the biggest issues they'll talk about will be trade. Despite recent diplomatic tensions, China remains Australia's biggest trading partner. Political reporter Tom Lowry is in Jakarta with more. The Prime Minister's visit to the ASEAN and East Asia summits this week has ostensibly been about building trade ties with Southeast Asia. And while that has undoubtedly been a big feature, conversations about Australia's largest trading partner, China, have been a constant. The Prime Minister joined other ASEAN leaders on Wednesday night at the summit's gala dinner, the sort of event which can sometimes provide a chance to grab a quick conversation that might not be possible in a more formal setting. On Thursday morning, it'll be back to business, as Anthony Albanese attends the East Asia Summit. It's a gathering of leaders from Southeast Asia, plus countries like Japan, the United States, China and Russia. The message from Australia will be fairly consistent from summits past, that it's the responsibility of all nations to uphold rules and support stability in the region. But before then, it's now expected Anthony Albanese will sit down with Chinese Premier Li Chang on the summit sidelines. It would be the highest level meeting between Australia and China since Mr Albanese met President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of last year's G20 summit in Bali. One persistent issue is that of two detained Australians in China, Yang Hengjun and Chung Lei. Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong says it's an issue Australian officials are continuing to push. We are deeply concerned about Ms Chung Lei and, and Dr Yang. Uh, as are so many Australians, uh, and we have continued to raise with uh, our counterparts at every level uh, the desire of, the, uh, of Australia to see uh, both Ms Jing Lei and Dr Young reunited with their families, and we'll continue to make those representations. Late tomorrow, the Prime Minister heads off on the next leg of his trip, landing in the Philippines. With tensions around the South China Sea fairly high at present, many of the conversations being had here are likely to continue there. That is political reporter Tom Lowry in Jakarta. And meanwhile, at a press conference in Jakarta, the Prime Minister was asked what he intended to say to President Wododo regarding the trade restrictions on Australian cattle yards due to those concerns around lumpy skin disease. In response, he said the President is a good friend of Australia and that he was pleased Malaysia had lifted their restrictions on the trade. Mr Albanese said Australia has provided the evidence that it remains free of lumpy skin disease and that Australian and Indonesian officials continue to work through the issues. We will stick with trade before half past 12 and look at a new shipment headed to a Southeast Asian country. But next, we'll talk about changes at the top of Cattle Australia.
On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. You can send me a text on 0487993222 about this or any other issues that you are facing in your day-to-day lives or here on the Country Hour. I'm always keen to hear from you. Cattle Australia's Chief Executive Officer Luke Bowen has stepped down from his leadership role, citing health reasons. Taking effect immediately, Cattle Australia's Director Adam Coffey will step in as the Interim Chief Executive while the board seeks to recruit a permanent replacement. A first-generation farmer, Mr Coffey has a mixed breeding and trading enterprise on 2,500 hectares at Miriam Vale, two hours south of Rockhampton on the Queensland coast. He tells Lucy Cooper it's an important time for the peak industry body as it quickly approaches its first anniversary. Oh, look, obviously it was born out of the Cattle Council restructure um, and, you know, that's that's dragged on for a long time. But ultimately what we received is what people want. We've got a, a producer, direct-elect organ, organisation. Um, you know, it's it's not perfect, but we're um, we're dealing with that as we go along. And, it's look, it's been a, an interesting mix, I guess, of transactional sort of stuff and nuts and bolts and originally, I guess, who, who had the keys to what. And then um, we've gone through a full strategic uh, reset. We've got a new strategic plan, um, so we're we're pretty clear as a board uh, on where we're headed, um, and then we're still, I guess, dealing with parts of that restructure and parts of our commitment this year was to have a, a constitutional review in part, and then also a review of our bylaws and uh, etc. So that that actually, um, as exciting as that doesn't sound, <laughs> that relates to um, the forming of a new, I guess. You know, with old cattle, cattle council used to have a uh, policy advisory uh, council and we're forming a new regional consultative committee that will um, basically be the engine room of the organisation and we're sort of, I guess we're expanding its remit and it's, it's really going to be, uh, you know, all about, I guess, not only policy but um, engagement uh, and advocacy um, across all industry issues. Um, so I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about where that's headed uh, and we're sort of on the countdown now to our 12-month AGM, um, and that'll be a pretty important milestone for the new organisation. News today has just emerged regarding um, Luke Bowen, who has notified the board of directors of his decision to step down from his leadership. Is there any chance you can expand on that and the fact that you're stepping in as interim CEO? Yeah, sure. And look, interim CEO certainly wasn't on my radar, um, but we, we do what we have to do when uh, when the chance comes along or, or you know when when the opportunity arises so look we're as an organization we're we're very sad to see luke go he's um you know he's been fantastic in the role and i think there are many people across the industry who who know luke and are aware of you know his capacity and, and what he's achieved over the years and i think the um the messages of support that have flown in certainly to me and i know to luke um, have have really proved that. So look, Luke's Luke's um, as I say stepped aside for health reasons. He's got something he's got to sort out, and we um, remain fully supportive and hope to re-engage him uh, in the future. And uh, yeah, I guess I've stepped into the interim CEO role uh, at a pretty critical time. Um, you know, as I alluded, we've got a lot of balls in the air in terms of I guess externally what's going on in the in- industry around sort of uh, lumpy skin and, and uh, ongoing biosecurity concerns. There's, there is a bit of downward pressure on the market as everyone's aware um acknowledging that this is certainly in northern areas kind of our pinch time of the year anyway so we're um we're we're sort of working where we can i guess on all of these issues to to turn that around um and then again internally we we have a lot to do we've sort of got um 
got our, our internal reviews going on all heading towards our AGM. So, yeah, it's a busy time. And um, I guess the opportunity out of this is uh, for me to step in as a as a producer and, and a director on the board to um, to uh, act as CEO until we get somebody um, somebody in that seat permanently. Mm, it's a it's a big job to step into, even just as interim CEO. So, do you have a time frame at all in terms of how long you'll be in this interim CEO position, and is now the time to be looking for that permanent replacement? Yeah, look, we've you know we're initiating that process already in in terms of finding a replacement, um, and I've I've committed to look. We have an AGM in in November. I can commit to then, or if needs be, till the end of the year. Um, we we don't want to rush this process, and as a board, we're very comfortable that we've got you know good processes in place. We've got good people around us. We've got a very capable crew uh, you know, of staff. You know, split between Canberra and Brisbane. That um, you know that will be business as usual. So uh, we're not going to rush. We're not going to rush the recruitment process or, or, or trying to find someone. We want to make sure we find the right person. And if that takes a little bit of time, then um, then so be it. And you touched on them, but, you know, looking forward to the next few months, those priorities for Cattle Australia, are they really lumpy skin disease, that downward trend in the market and that forecast, which is expected to come next week, of calling an El Nino? Yeah, look, as a producer, I, I mean, I speak for myself. We don't uh, really put too much emphasis on, on forecasts, acknowledging that seasons fluctuate and we've had a pretty good run over the last few years. Um, here in Miriamvale or on our place, we actually had 34 mil last week. So <laughs> I, if that's what El Nino looks like, then I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. But, um, it, you know, that was just a good reminder. That, and you speak to a lot of producers who who are more than aware that, you know, El Nino, La Nina, whatever the sort of overarching drivers of the season are, you, you know, that doesn't really mean much in terms of whether you do or, or don't get uh, an adequate or, or better than average season. So, you know, there are a lot of one percenters kicking around at the moment in our industry and it's it's um, it's not as if we can pluck out the, the one solution to, to kind of fix the situation. Um, having said that, we're very aware of it and we're really aware, I guess, particularly of northern producers and the pressures they're on in terms of, uh, what's happening with exports to Indonesia? So we're certainly fully engaged in that process and um, and yeah, assisting wherever we can to to make sure that we get the the right outcome there. That's Queensland Grazier and now interim CEO of Cattle Australia, Adam Coffey, speaking to Lucy Cooper. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 27 past 12. We'll head to the Weather Bureau in the next six minutes to get you a forecast for the next couple of days. What's your view on Cattle Australia? We are looking at coming up onto that anniversary of a year in operation. Has things changed for you? Do you feel better represented by the new industry body? 0487993222 is the number to send me a text message. Remember to pop your name and where you're from on there so I can say good day. I did get one a little earlier on food security. It says food security is complicated with production, 40% waste of food and world conflict. Where we are making money on some grain sales, other countries can't seem to sell theirs. It is definitely a complex global picture. I'd love to hear from you this afternoon, 0487 993 222. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. A shipment of macadamia nuts to India is being called a historic moment for the industry. The country's largest macadamia processor, Marquis Macadamias, has exported its first container of kernels to the country. 
The access into the market of more than 1.4 billion people is as a result of the new Australia-India Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement. Its managing director of marketing, Don Ross, tells Kim Honan it's a significant moment. It's something that we've been working on for the last six months. Uh, We've been working in conjunction with the Australian Macadamia Society and the uh, Queensland Government as well. And it will be a great boost for our growers, uh, particularly those down in the um, Northern Rivers area. So when is the first shipment uh, likely to land? Is it, sorry, is it going by ship or by plane? Uh, we're doing both so we can get some product over there quickly. We're sending uh, part of it by, uh, by air and then the rest of it will go across uh, by, uh, by boat. So how many tonnes of uh, kernel are we talking? Uh, talking eight tonnes at the moment. And what would that be valued at, eight tonnes? Uh, well, I guess it depends on what they do with it over there in terms of packing and uh, retailing. Uh, but to us, to our growers, it's quite a significant uh, amount for our growers. Can you say how much? Uh, no, I, I think that's commercial that I'd, I'd prefer to keep. And so what regions are the nut coming from? Is it both uh, the northern rivers areas and also Queensland? Uh, it is coming from both. Uh, all of our product uh, does uh, end up uh, going to various destinations uh, regardless of the origin. But I can say a lot of it is coming from the uh, northern rivers. And so is this a, a good deal for Australian growers, uh, given the tariffs there at the moment? Uh, they, they are, what, um, declining over the, is it, what, the next how many years? Yes, yeah, so the uh, Australian-India Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement's over uh, you know, some 15 years, but it's a, a drop uh, significantly initially, and then it will slowly go down to zero. How much tariffs are we paying at the moment on this oh, load? Well... Prior to this load, it would have been 22% of that region and uh, it's dropped by, I believe, 5%. Okay, so 17% tariff on that those nuts? That's right. That's right. So this is initial shipment. Uh, how frequently will you be following up with sending more macadamias? I guess it depends on how successful the Australian Macadamia Society Festival is. And as you know, they've got uh, a couple of weeks in September where they're getting around the um, about five uh, restaurants and getting chefs to prepare product. If that takes off, then uh, you could see a lot of product going to India very quickly. And is India getting a, a good deal here, given that macadamia prices in Australia has dropped so significantly? Marquee suppliers are getting around $1.70 notional a kilo this year. Um, there's no doubt that uh, both organisations are getting a good deal. If we can move volume, we'll help our growers. And if India takes uh, volume and really uh, wants to grow the market, then in the future, uh, it's going to be a great market for us. As our prices increase, as the industry is hoping in coming years, will India match that price? I think we'll have to wait and see. But I think once you open up a market, it's like any market, you, you go in there and then you Um, find the volume increases, then uh, you'll find the price increases. That's just uh, normal economics. And what sort of return will growers here receive from this shipment? Are we likely to see that $1.70 a kilo uh, this year farm gate price lift at all? Well, you've got to remember that, uh, you know, we take in some, you know, 20-odd thousand tonnes of nut and shell. We're we're talking about 8,000 tonnes, sorry, 8,000 kilograms of uh, of uh, kernel. So it won't be a significant um, uh, improvement, but it's a step in the right direction for the future.
That's Don Ross, the Managing Director of Marquee Marketing, speaking to Kim Honan. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour, and I'd love to hear from you. 0487 is the number to send me a text message. It's 27 to 1. Before 1 o'clock, we are going to visit an oasis that was born during the drought and meet a fellow who is taking on the world in an unusual capacity. In fact, two people who are taking on the world in unusual capacities. I'll share them with you before one o'clock. Right now, though, it's time for us to get the latest from the Weather Bureau on what you can expect over the coming days. Good afternoon, Phelan Hanafi. Good afternoon, indeed. Now, how are we shaping up over the the last the next couple of days? I believe that we, we've picked up a little bit of that uh, storm activity that had previously settled. Yeah, indeed. So the watch point really over the next 24 to 48 hours is a pretty significant frontal system that's going to move into the far southwest um, during the second half of today or later today. Ahead of it, we've got uh, strong and gusty northwesterly winds. And we do have a strong wind, uh, severe weather warning, I should say, for that system due to the strength of the winds there in the far southwest. So that's over the the far south of the Channel Country and southwestern Marino and Warrigal. We did see a gust just south of the border of around the 46 knots, so that's closer, around the 90 k's an hour. And potential to see those kind of gusts there uh, in the warning area as we go through this afternoon and early evening. We will have the, the southwesterly change move in here, though, probably during the evening, and that should mean the strongest of the winds then easing as well. Now, with that change, we could see some raised dust coming in with that system in across western areas as well. Now, ahead of it, we got another little system that's generated some isolated shower and storm activity further east over the Darling Downs at the moment. There is an isolated chance of some severe activity with that this afternoon, probably more over northern New South Wales, uh, but still a watch point for those areas over the southern downs as well, just uh, during this afternoon. There has been a bit of storm activity rumbling on it, but nothing significant at this stage. And then up over more eastern areas, up over the central and northeast, we got a bit of cloud feeding on, a bit more showers here than of late feeding on due to a trough in the Coral Sea. So quite a bit going on today across mm-hmm. Queensland. And are those conti- those conditions likely to continue? You did mention that the winds will start to ease, but what other change should we expect over the next couple of days? Yeah, indeed. So that significant system in the southeast is, or in the southwest is going to move uh, quickly eastwards over the next 24 hours. So it's going to flush uh, a much cooler and fresher south um, southerly change up across most of the interior tomorrow. So places that are that are at the moment seeing mid mid 30s in terms of temperatures. That's out in the far west, dropping back to the the low 20s tomorrow. So you're dropping back to around. 10 degrees as well. Mm. With this drier airflow as well, we do have elevated fire dangers, fire dangers, so high fire dangers to most of the interior today, even some local extremes there across parts of the southwest and southern interior, just due to the strength of the winds. But that cooler change then sweeps east tomorrow. The focal point of the potential shower and storm activity with that system will be probably east of Longreach tomorrow, given that you'll have already had uh, southwesterly change in for areas further west. Uh, but tomorrow, the, the the severe thunderstorm risk with that system very much over parts of the southeast and central districts there south of about Rockhampton tomorrow. So watch point as that, that change rolls in towards those coastal parts of the southeast, whether it'll trigger some potential severe thunderstorms. Any risk of frost with that cold change? Potentially over the weekend, yeah, much cooler air mass. So, I mean, it's feeling very spring-like now across most mm. of the state. But, yeah, it's back to almost a bit of a, 
a winter theme come the weekend, that cooler, drier, southerly flushing across most of the interior and central and southern half of the state. And yet there is a chance of some some patchy frost there even about the southern and southeastern interior come Sunday morning as well. Probably the, the coolest air probably lingers for, for about one or two days. So even into early Monday, you still the chance of some patchy frosts about the interior. Elsewhere, though, along the east coast, though cooler, we'll probably still have to contend with some coastal showers by that stage as the trade, southeastly trade strengthens. So you'll have showers for the coast, but dry, a drier, uh, fresher air mass through most of the interior. How about conditions in the north and northwest? Yeah, well, conditions in the north, we got cloud feeding on shore, and that's that's a hint of a bit more unsettling conditions there uh, for parts of the northeast over the next few days. Uh, cloud and shower activity as well. And, yeah, the focal point, once we go into the weekend, north topple coast for just a persistent trade flow showers there, particularly along the wet tropics. In terms of the northwest, we will see that that cooler change move across the area tomorrow but it will result in elevated fire dangers up here and some cooler fresher mornings to come <coughs> for parts of the the northwest with uh, you know some gusty south suddenly sticking around over the weekend so that's going to mean you know, high fire dangers throughout and what's the coastal forecast Coastal forecasts with that with those strengthening southeasterly trades uh, more in the way of wind there along parts of the particularly the northeast northeast uh, coast as we go into the weekend. We could see some strong wind warnings uh, developing up over parts of the, particularly the Cooktown and Peninsula waters over the weekend and even potential over the southeast gulf as well as we get that drier airflow moving up there uh, during Saturday. Well, it sounds like a good reason to have the Bureau's warning page bookmarked, Phelan. Thank you very much yes. for your time. My pleasure. Phelan Hanafi, the forecaster on duty at the Weather Bureau. And, of course, you can find those warnings by heading to bom.gov.au. You can always check out ABC Emergency as well, where you can get the latest emergency information as needed. It's 21 to 1. Saturday Night Country. Join icon Becky Cole for contemporary and classic country music tracks, plus interviews with Australian legends and rising stars. Us Australians, we're so she'll be right, mate. I couldn't work out why in Nashville I just didn't feel right. It's a real art. It was full on. <laughs> it's really magic. It's just so special. Saturday Night Country. It was a life-changing experience for us. The home of country music. Sounding better than ever. We're online and on ABC Radio. Now, in the middle of a drought, the thing that people often miss is their garden. And if you're a producer, planting flowers doesn't seem like the obvious choice to diversify. But Ali Hill's family said goodbye to their sheep and hello to hundreds of Geraldton wax plants. And that was back in 2019. She told her story to Ellie Bradfield. So we started in mid-2019. As you'd be aware, we were in a pretty awful drought Um, in 2019. I was on maternity leave. We had a six-month-old baby and we had just said goodbye to our beautiful merino ewes on a truck uh, because we had no crops, we had no pasture. We'd fed for too long and couldn't afford to keep feeding. And my husband sat, uh, myself and my mother-in-law, who still reside on the property with us, he sat us down and said, righto, we need to look at diversifying. What, What do you think we could do? 
And I said to him, well, I've always loved growing flowers and we grow beautiful roses here on our farm. And I said, I would obviously love to sell those roses into commercial markets. But unfortunately, they're such a fragile flower. That just wasn't an option. We're too far from markets and freight um, issues here. So I said, what about Geraldton Wax? I said, that's a really hardy Western Australian native. It loves sand. Uh, we had a nice little sand plot at the back of our house. So I said, you know, why not? So they gave it a go. And now her bunches of Geraldton Wax sell out in less than an hour at their local supplier. Casey Lockwood of Handmade St George says people just can't wait to get their hands on the flowers. Well, everyone loves Alice Wax. It is such a beautiful product. It's, I think the reason it is so, so loved is that have a product that's picked literally days before we take it home to our houses. It lasts a month. And also the fact that it's the middle of winter when the wax flowers is such a beautiful thing. It's really lovely. How quickly does it sell out? Usually there's a little bit of a stampede on a Saturday morning. <laughs> so I think people keep an eye out for when Ali's car pulls up. Um, so it, can, it often sells out sort of inside the first hour, if not even you know, less than that. We do take orders sometimes, um, but yeah, whichever way, it's it goes quickly. Yeah, it's been amazing to watch Ali grow that business from the ground up, from nothing to what it is today. And I guess I do feel really grateful to have been a part of that journey and to give her, I guess, a little bit of an opportunity to, to sell her flowers locally. It's been fabulous. Ali's just one of the many that sell in the store. How important is it when you live somewhere like St George to have an outlet like this? I think it's invaluable. We started Handmade at a time when Etsy was huge and people loved buying Handmade but there was no, we didn't have a local market at the time and there was no local presence and we discovered that there were quite a few people selling their handmade goods online but we didn't know about it locally. So I think it's really, you know, really powerful to have that local presence and people love supporting locals. So they would much rather spend their money on something that's made in our community as opposed to something that's made elsewhere. And I think visitors to town too love taking home a little piece of St George and supporting us that way. Now it all looks very pretty on Instagram, but Ali says there's always plenty of dirt under her fingernails. That's the side of farming that people don't see and don't understand how much goes, how much hard work goes in behind the scenes. So I pick my wax, I then process it. So to process it, I have to strip all the green leaf matter that goes below the waterline. I then have to put all my stems into stem lengths and then I arrange and then it goes into the cool room and then I wrap and then I take it into town. So it is a lot um, of behind the scenes. And then there's a lot of watering, fertilising, mulching, weeding. It's never ending never ending. What about just fitting it in around kids and mm-hmm. the rest of the farm and teaching and all everything else that you have with a young family? Has it been something that has been able to fit in with your lifestyle or how, is that, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes and no. We are very, very, very busy here at home, but we're also incredibly lucky that my parents-in-law live on the property with us. So my mother-in-law helps out as much as she can with either processing the flowers or having the children so I can. When the children are in daycare, which is two days a week, I'm running around like a chick with my head cut off doing flowers, lots and lots of early mornings before my children wake up or the children just play around me. Ollie and Clem, just they're just used to it and I lose the odd flower with them and their snips, but 
you know, that's life. I, yeah, can't do anything about that. <laughs> and we are always talking about farm diversification. You talked about that earlier. Looking down the barrel of another dry season, yes. potentially after a few good years, how important do you think setting up this business has been and will be for you as a family going forward? To be honest, it's more a hobby, Nico will call it. It's not, you know, a huge money maker. We, we would not be able to survive off the wax alone. Uh, but on the same hand, we did try the wax in different areas on our farm to see if we could go larger. But it, it is a very finicky plant. A lot of people see it and think, oh, that must be so easy to grow because you grow it so well. No, it's an incredible hard plant to grow. They die at the drop of a hat. Uh, they need really sandy soil, they need raised beds, they need water and yeah, they just failed on the areas we did try on our farm. So it is more just a little bit of extra income but more of a, a hobby. We really do rely on our crops and our sheep, I suppose, for our main income here and teaching. I'll never give up teaching. She says it's really important for people to know where their flowers come from. If you buy your flowers from your local florist, to just have a chat to them. Where, you know, where, where did you source these flowers? Because a lot of the florists source them from their local markets, like the Brisbane Flower Markets are our local wholesale markets. But a lot of them don't actually understand, were they grown in Australia? Are they imported? And it is just so nice to know if you're buying an Australian-grown product. That's Ali Hill of Dunkery Flora ending that story from Ellie Bradfield. And I can highly recommend jumping online to abc.net.au slash rural to have a look at some of the gorgeous pictures of those blooms. I swear sometimes I think uh, farming is the art of making something complex look simple. And those pictures definitely do show up as uh, some beautiful, beautiful flowers. I'd uh, highly recommend you jump online and, and have a look at those Geraldton waxes. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 14 to 1. ABC Radio, your local source of national and international news, weather and emergency information. We engage with audiences through both analogue and digital radio services. In times of emergency, all the latest news and information can be heard via your local ABC radio station, online at abc.net.au slash radio or via the ABC Listen app or head to abc.net.au slash news for further news and information. ABC Radio, across Australia. I'm going to introduce you to two Aussies that have taken on the world in very different competitions but are definitely stamping their place. We'll start with Don Woods. Now, Don wouldn't look out of place in a medieval battlefield. He's on horseback and he has a bow and arrow at his side. But it's a far cry from his home on a station north of Cooktown in far north Queensland. It's also a long way from Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, where he's currently competing for the first time at the Horse Archery World Championships. Just four Aussies made the cut, and he's the only Queenslander. Before he went overseas, Bridget Herman caught up with him to find out what drew him to such a unique sport. For me, it's a sense of calm. I, I actually, I'm quite an anxious person naturally. But um, for me, I, I actually feel more calm up there at speed during the shooting. There's, I, I suppose there's a sense of focus to, to, to it. You have to be completely focused on the target and going forward. There's no, there's no time to be thinking about anything else. There is just simply you, 
the bow and the target and of course the horse underneath you but you're just sort of hoping they do as as you ask <laughs> bit of trouble if they don't is it just a little bit yeah um i've had that happen a couple of times but... you know, delving into a bit more like you said you've sort of done horses and archery for a while what what is your history with two sports as a kid i don't know i suppose my little boys go through the robin hood stage you know on the be robin hood and shooting arrows and bows and all of that i guess i just got a little obsessed i can remember building my first sort of self bow at about seven with some help from my older brothers and um yeah it was just a sapling that was sort of cut in two and shaved down and shave some more bits of timber down to make arrows and stick bits of feather on them and and I guess that's where it sort of started because once I started to shoot I got a little obsessed I got my first bow on my ninth Christmas I think and I remember the excitement the shooting and after that there was just no real stopping me I uh, got a little obsessed and I, I wouldn't I can't actually tell you how many bows I own <laughs> In general, um, I've probably broken more than most people own. But yeah, I've spent a lot of hours shooting now. And then about five years ago, I discovered the horse archery. And it's, yeah, I haven't really looked back since. So you've done it for about five years, but you're actually going to be taking on a new challenge pretty soon. What is that? So in less than a week, um, I fly to Mongolia. So for the world, IHA World Championships. Um, it's kind of a big deal for me. Um, something I've really been wanting to do for a while, World Championships. Um, look, was looking into possibly making it to France in 2020. Got cancelled because of COVID. And, um, yeah, this is like a second chance to go again and have some fun. How do you reckon you'll come up? I guess that's what I'll find out. <laughs> I know I do all right in Australia, but um, it's a completely different ball game. Mongolians basically, they basically invented the sport, the way of life for them in the past. So, yeah, I think I think it's a matter of going over to basically the best. So, pretty epic, really. Like, <laughs> it's um, it's a big sense of excitement. It's sort of honoured as well. Like, it's 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 some big thing. Like, there's a fair there's probably a few hundred of us in Australia doing it and they make that selection to be one of the ones to go over. Like I don't consider myself the best in Australia or even one of the best. I'm just someone who enjoys the sport. So to make the cut, to be able to go over and do my part is quite an honour. Yeah. Mounted archer Don Woods, who's currently competing at the Horse Archery World Championships in Mongolia. Check out some pictures of him in action on our website, abc.net.au slash rural. Thanks to Bridget Herman for that story. Well, to a very different kind of world championship, but one that an Aussie has taken out nonetheless and nonetheless, and one for the poultry farmers as well. Now, earlier this week, Australian competitive eater James Webb set a new world record for the number of chicken wings he ate at a competition in New York. What I didn't know until today, though, was that this was his second major US championship in 48 hours. So he devoured 276 chicken wings in 12 minutes after 
already claiming a victory in Colorado, where he ate 32 sloppers in eight minutes. Now, if you're wondering what a slopper is, so was Thomas Ariti. <laughs> slopper, well, it is famous in a place called Pueblo, which is south of uh, Colorado. Basically, it's an open-faced cheeseburger, so half a cheeseburger bun, a meat patty, a slice of American cheese, topped with uh, Pueblo green chili, which is kind of like a green salsa that's a little bit spicy. So how did you, particularly with that spicy sauce, how did you feel after eating 32 of them in eight minutes? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, look, very bloated, a little bit gassy. And uh, to be honest, it was, it was pretty tasty. The, the chili wasn't too chilly. It had good flavor more than like that hit. So I didn't mind it. Now, chicken wings, 276 in 12 minutes. And when you break that down, that's 23 wings a minute. How did you do that? Close your eyes, hope for the best. <laughs> uh, to be honest, uh, to be honest, it was um, the wings were really tender and they were really easy to eat. To be honest, so look, I know it's the same for everyone. I just, I'm a big, got a big mouth. I chucked it all in there and pulled it out as quick as I could. And I, I was really impressed. Actually, I didn't realize how quick and how much I ate. I do notice, you, you know, you drink while you're eating, and I wanted to ask you about that. What, what is it that you drink? And I, I mean, I would have thought the liquid would take up vital food space in, in your stomach. I know a lot of professional eaters sort of try not to drink because it fills them up, but obviously not for you. Yeah, look, uh, a couple of reasons why I drink. So I use uh, sugar-free cranberry juice. Um, I need something sweet to break up the flavor and to help wash it down. Um, you're gulping in, especially with chicken wings, big, big chunks of chicken. And you just got a, a very, once in a while, you just take a quick mouthful to push everything down. And also... Eating, like, you know, once you're 100 wings in or 150 wings in, your mouth is like, I've had enough of this flavor. Like, I need something different. So the sweetness, American drinks are so sweet. So I break up the flavor in my mouth and I guess refresh it and good to go again. At, at, at the end of the competition, do, do you feel sick? I mean, what happens after that? How long does it take you to, to feel ready to eat your next meal after a competition like that? Look, to be honest, after a contest, you generally don't eat much um so because i ate a lot of chicken wings they're very salty so you're very thirsty and dehydrated so to be honest after a contest like that i have like a couple of oreos just because i love oreos <laughs> something sweet to like make, keep my keep my mouth happy but i didn't actually eat another meal until the next day how do you train for the competition ahead of the event though do, do you go through a period of not eating at all before you take on a challenge like that um not really okay so look there's a couple of things Firstly, we're all into the gym. We're all into some kind of exercise. You've got to be kind of fit to eat because you get puffed out, right? Yeah. yeah. So your 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 activity routine, like your gym or whatever you're into, that's important. Also, training makes you hungry. So that's a big part of it. Then you've got your capacity part of it. You've got to be able to fit the food in your stomach. Now, I ate nine and a half pounds of chicken in 12 minutes. So you've got to be able to fit nine and a half pounds, which is like almost what, four and a half kilos in your stomach. So you got to train capacity. So yeah, that's like going to the buffet, eating a lot, stretching your stomach, making sure you've got room to be able to fit that amount of food. And then technique obviously is important. So you got to practice, how am I going to eat these wings? You know, do you, like I put the whole thing in my mouth, bite down really hard and pull the bone out at the same time. The Americans kind of use this other technique where they smash the wing into their palm of their hand to like loosen up the meat yeah, and then like pull it off. So it's kind of different, but you got to practice those, those three that's the big three for when it comes to training. And then in terms of like leading into the contest. So the contest was a Saturday, usually Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 
you're eating as big as you can to stretch your stomach. Okay. Maybe yeah, once right. or twice a day. And then maybe 12, I, personally me, usually 12 hours before a contest, I don't eat. I just drink a lot of water. So I'm hydrated because you don't want to be thirsty leading into a contest, especially something salty like buffalo wings, because like you said, you'll waste too much time drinking and you'll fill yourself up on drink, not just drink as needed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what, what with, looking at you, you're not, you're not, um, some people might sort of have this idea that competitive eaters are, you know, morbidly obese or something like that. But I mean, you're not at, at, at all. You, you, you look like a fit guy. I mean, what does this sport uh, take a toll on your body and your health? Are you, are you aware of that? Uh, well, look, the thing is, if you look at the best guys, a lot of them, the best guys and girls, a lot of us are fit. We're into the gym. We're into training. Yeah. We all have our exercise regime. And the thing is like, it's all relative. Like obviously I've put on weight. There's no doubt about it. I'm eating a lot of food. I've put on some kilos, some body fat, but look, I get my checkups with the doctor. And to be fair with you, my doctor's more scared of me losing a tooth because he sees me bite into chicken wings <laughs> yeah, and half my bone is missing afterwards. Right? Yeah. So as long as my blood tests come back okay and my teeth are intact, I'm good to go. Well, that is competitive eater James Webb, who took out two major US championships in 48 hours on the weekend. We're about to head off to the markets. Before we do that, though, I want to let you know that the Queensland Fire and Emergency Service has issued a watch and act warning to prepare to leave for Cecil Plains near Cumbarilla. That fire there is large and slow moving, burning in the Cumbarilla State Forest and travelling towards Cecil Plains, Mooney Road and Cecil Plains. Conditions could get worse quickly. Firefighters are working to contain the fire, but you should not expect a firefighter at your door. Aircraft are helping ground crews to fight that fire. So if you're in that area, it's definitely time to take a look at your bushfire survival plan and make a plan if things do change. Currently, there's no risk to property, but the situation could get worse quickly, particularly with those winds around this afternoon. So keep an eye on the Bureau's website, also the qfes.qld.gov emergency warnings. And as always, keep listening to ABC Radio for the latest emergency updates as well. Let's head to the Warwick sheep sale. Errol Luck has the quotes. Young lambs back to paddock reduced by 14 and sold from 27 to 42. Young lambs over 18 kilos sold to 42 to 67. Light lambs to feed made to 89 to average 80. Light trade lambs sold from 72 to 94. Lambs suited the wholesale meat trade average 89 and sold to 96 with the feeder operators paying to 99. Heavy trade lambs made 112 to average 99 with one pin of ewe lambs back to the paddock at 109. Heavy hawkers received strong demand from the buying panel and sold to 101, averaging 71. Lightweight ewes went against the trend and lifted by four, selling to 25 to 30. Heavy ewes to processors sold from 30 to 45 and heavy weathers to processors sold to 54 with merino weathers with skin selling from 30 to 36. Two crossbred rams found new homes at $72 a head. Thank you very much, Errol. That's it for your Queensland Country Hour today. I'll be back again from midday tomorrow. Tune in to your rural report from a quarter past six. Right now, it's time for the news. It's one o'clock.